Welcome to Piper's How I Grew My Brand with me, Mary Nightingale. Today I'm with Jasper Cuppage, founder of Camden Town Brewery, the man responsible for making beer sexy and for putting craft beer well and truly on the global map. In fact, he says he's spent his whole life getting into trouble with beer, starting at boarding school in his native Australia. Welcome, Jasper. Um, where I understand you actually did start making your own beer. I don't think I made it at school, but I definitely made it away from school. I was at boarding school in Brisbane and uh, obviously Queensland, a, a state that's passionate about beer because it's so tremendously hot. So on weekends I would uh, go back home and make illicit brews that I don't think were very good. I don't know if I actually ever drank them, but I definitely remember making them. But yeah, that DNA of loving beer definitely came from, from, from a hot climate of home for sure. Did your parents welcome the fact that you were making beer? Was it something that you had to I, kind of do on the quiet? Yeah, very much so. I don't think, I, my, I, probably my dad was probably thought, you know, probably, probably gave me a stern word, but probably deep down was probably very excited that I was getting into beer at a young age. But not, we're not talking super young. I wasn't like 12. I would have been 16 or 17. Yeah. I think a lot of people in beer home brewed. You know, I think, uh, and if you talk to a lot of people that I've met over the years in beer, everyone somewhere along has had some sort of touching point with beer, be it, be it home brewing, be it the first thing they drank, be it the mm. first thing they had socially. So, yeah, it goes back a long time with me, that's for sure. Well, it's in your blood, isn't it, arguably? Because didn't your grandfather that's right. have a history of running pubs? And was he brewing as well, or did that's he just right. run the pub? Yeah, yeah, my grandfather, Laurie, who unfortunately I never got to meet, but I didn't really even know about this until I got, until I actually decided to brew in, in, in London, but... um. He owned a brewery called McLaughlin's Brewery in Rockhampton. And then when I started thinking about brewing in, in London, my mother said, you know, your, father, your grandfather had a brewery. I didn't realise how big it was. It was actually quite substantial. It supplied like northern Queensland from Rockhampton to the further parts of Australia. And, uh, and yeah, again, uh, I, uh, it, I guess it, maybe it was in my blood. Craft beer, it's a term everyone now knows, isn't it? We're very familiar with that. But how would you actually define it? What does it mean? Mm, I think... When we started out, craft was a word that was coming into the industry. We were built as a, I guess, as a new brewery or a microbrewery, I guess, were the terms that were going about when we started. And even though we don't classify ourselves as a craft brewery, you know, we're, you know, we're a good brewery, we're a new brewery or a microbrewery, I guess, we look at ourselves as craft people. You look at everything from, and granularly. So you'd look at who, where your grain comes from and who, who malts it or who grows your hops and how do they look after it? Are they organic? How are they treated? How are they harvested? Or even... You know, all your brewing steps and processes all the way through from end to end, you know, like a, pair, like a pair of shoes, you'd consider the box and the leather and the stitching and the paper and everything. So it's, a, it's, it's an attention it's an, to detail, it's caring. Exactly. I think that's how we look at it, definitely, because every part of a brewing process matters. You know, the label on the bottle matters when you've got it in your hand, you know, that the amount of carbonation of beer matters, how it presents in a glass, all those things are considered. And I think that's true craft brewing is that it's, you're thinking about every element in detail because the grain to glass is a big, big, big piece. When you were um, a little boy, were you ambitious? If I look back on my, you know, I was terrible at school. You know, not terrible as in a sense I didn't get into trouble, but I wasn't I, academically. Academic, right. I didn't do very. I was, I'm dyslexic. I didn't. Looking back at my school years, even though I had a wonderful time, I loved the school that I went to. I loved the friendships that I made. I love even the teachers that I went to, but I didn't learn anything. You know, and I then still don't reason, don't understand that why because actually, if I read something, I can I can take that in and grasp it. But at school, maybe I wasn't the way I was being taught wasn't engaging to me but yet the the, the environment I was in was really fun I always thought because I was at a you know private boarding school so I was going to be a lawyer or I was gonna, but I'd never yeah. got the results to get me to university right so I never could understand why 
So I never really knew what I was going to do. And so I came out of school. I didn't get into university and just started working. You know? mm. And I guess I worked in many things, things that I found interesting, things that I found boring, and then stayed in the things that I enjoyed and then ultimately earned enough money to take myself away to do something because I loved skiing. And so I took myself skiing in Canada and learned to be a ski instructor and got into something that I really enjoyed and wanted to excel at it and take it. And I guess that's something that I've really, throughout my career, I've kind of found things I really loved and tried to get to, the, you know, maybe not to the best. And I read a wonderful book yesterday by the gentleman who started Patagonia and he said he was an 80-20 guy, you know, where mm-hmm. he gets to 80% of something and he knows he can't get any better, so he moves on to the next thing. And I think that's kind of a bit like myself. You know, I like to dive into something and understand it and take myself up to a level that I really feel I'm great at, but then maybe I'm never going to be world-class at it. But I still go back to it. You know, I love going back to skiing when I can, but, you know, I love doing, you know, my favourite job, you know, started off as a glass collector. I yeah, still yeah. love that. You know, when I interview everyone in the business that I run now, I always tell them I'm the best glass collector we have in this business. <laughs> and I love going back to the things that I've started, I've excelled at. I don't like doing things that I'm not good at. So I don't, the, the things that I love doing that I've become okay at, I really enjoy going and doing again. What did your parents expect you to do, do you think? Did they expect? No. I mean, I'm very close with my mother, you know, and she, no, no, my mother never had put pressure on me to be anything. I think she was always, she knew that I would, whatever I did, that I'd be happy. And I think that's always, my mother's always been happy for me to be a happy person, you know, and she brings that to me. And she's always put disciplines around me to make sure that I don't, you know, go off track. I think she's obviously very proud of where I've got to and what we've done. But no, there was never, you must go into this or you must go into that. I think she knew that I'd I'd find something that I really enjoyed. Yeah. So mm. you came over to England and, mm. and there's a story in that, of course, because you, you missed your flight home, right? That's right. I'd been surfing in Mexico and I was on one of those Australian world global tickets where you tick off countries like boxes and I was uh, on my way through London because I had to stop here. I had no desire to stay because um, there was no surf here that I was I'm not really interested in cold water. I like warm water. So I was on my way off to Africa to surf even further. And lo and behold, I went to an opening of a restaurant and met some friends and I missed a flight home and ended up getting a job there collecting glasses. And that was my first, I guess, my first day in in, uh, in the uh, hospitality industry, mm. and that's which I fell in love with immediately. You know, within a day of doing it, I was like, wow, this is great. Not looking at it, like, this is my career. I just loved going into work with a spring in my step every day. Missed another flight, or well, didn't actually even try to get to the next flight, but just decided that, that was my calling. And then, yeah, started working at the Westbourne in Notting Hill at the beginning of the kind of food revolution. And yeah, just fell in love with the industry. And, and here we are today. Mm. And met your partner. I did. I met Lila there, yeah, funnily enough. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, at the Westbourne, and then and then yeah, and then we've been yeah. It's like gosh, it feels like such a it feels like just the other day, but it's a long, long time ago, twenty two, twenty three years ago. So yes, I did. So how did you go from that glass collecting to to then brewing the beer, and how did that career actually happen? Because it doesn't happen by accident. There has to be more planning to it than that, surely. For me, it was like taking myself through self education. You know, I'd like I like doing this, and then I could see there was another job, so I wanted to do be a bartender. And how do you do that? So I was a bar back, and I guess I progressed from the ground up. You know, working you know all through all the levels, you know, glass collector, bartender, you know, floor manager, manager, general manager, the usual kind of traits, and then to working for other people and ultimately always never happy with who was above me, hence the reason why I wanted to do their job. You know, I can do it better, so I'll continue to work until I get those roles. And then ultimately the next role was 
being my own boss. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, you know, like, so then I looked around and I found my own venue and I bought a, you know, bought the horseshoe up in Hampstead. And the timing was good, wasn't it? Because as, as you said, it was right at the beginning of of the sort of food revolution and and pubs were very different then. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it was a wonderful time in food because it was being discovered. And craft beer was was not popular or or ubiquitous or re, you know, really widely known then, was it? it? That was something new as well. That's right. There was no beer. I mean, there was obviously the globals and there were wonderful old traditional regionals, but Lila was a uh, was a, is a photographer and was working in New York quite a lot, and so I was travelling out there to see her and. Brooklyn Lager had just started and I was completely fascinated with Brooklyn and so I went to Brooklyn and met Steve Hindi, the, the founder of Brooklyn, and their labelling was wonderful and their beers were just as wonderful, but I didn't feel that was happening over here. You could get wonderful beer, but they couldn't get a wonderful brand. So I decided that I'd build a brewery. You know, I'm going to make something interesting. I'm going to build a brewery because you could, you know, I'm going to build a brewery in the basement because you could get wonderful wine and you get great coffee from caravans say roasted around the corner get great cheese from patricia at the fromagerie but when it came to beer on a you know on the horseshoe i could get nothing that i was interested in that i could talk about so i decided well if i can't get it i'll make it and that was the start of uh, of camden right mm. or mclaughlin's at first but then it was camden yes yes okay because yeah. max max yeah. was taken as max the name was, was right yeah, okay right. you you mentioned the b word brand there yes. for the first time um and i want to bring in your father-in-law john mm. hegarty lila's dad mm. um of the advertising agency bartle bogle hegarty who joined you at the beginning too I mean, this man is the king of brand. How, how, how did you luck out with your father-in-law? Because he really helps you right at the beginning, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I've been, like, I've been very lucky. You know, I've fallen into a wonderful family. Elliot, Lila, you know, Kari and John have been so, so supportive of me. And I remember when I did the horseshoe, John was like, well, let me invest in it. And I was like, no, I don't want you to invest in it because if it goes bust, I'm going to sit at the Sunday lunch table and I've lost all your money. You know, so I'm not, you know, but he's like, no, don't be silly. You know, let's get, you know, let me help you. So he did invest in the horseshoe, only a small percentage of it. And, but he was always, he's always been, I guess, more than an investment. He's always been there for time. You know, he's always been able to talk to me about brand, about, and I never really understood the importance of brand. And it was him who really helped me think or, or channeled my thoughts to sort of come up with the brand. So, so you got a mentor, really. Yeah. Yeah, how important is it, do you think? When you're starting out, to have a, a mentor as an entrepreneur. Oh, it's very lonely being an entrepreneur. I think. I mean that, you know, it's very. You know, you're making a lot of decisions all, all the time on your own. So to have someone who's a sounding board or a, or just someone to talk to is very. For me, it was very important. You know, if I look back, it was probably one of the most important things. I was very lucky with the horseshoe that my three best friends who were very successful joined me as well, and they were kind of indirectly mentors as well. So I always had, depending on what the problem was, I always had someone to go and reflect with. You know? So what, what business were your friends in? Who's... So they were in bars. So there was a team called Barworks. So there was Andreas, Mark and Patrick, who owned you know a collection of really exciting bars in London at the time, and still today. And they came on as a partner into Camden at a very early age. And they were, I guess, they were a different part of the mentoring process, but they were there. They weren't there every day, but if I needed any of them, I could always call them for a coffee or a discussion or should we do this or should we do that? You said that you didn't understand about brands mm. until John Hegarty explained to you. Can you remember what he said about brands? How did he how did he explain the concept of brand to He'd you? He'd always say the value is in the brand because everything falls off it. And so I didn't really know at the beginning what it really stood for or cared for what it stood for. I just knew what we were doing was important. But then... And I think it's the way we went about finding out about what we stood for was super important. But him always saying, you need to understand what it stands for. And I guess that's was, yeah, from now, it's been very important for the team. So explain to me, what is your brand? 
<laughs> Gosh, I should know this off the top of you my head. You really should. I think Come it's, on. You know, it's proud, simple, and strong. I guess is how we've always been. And I guess, and being a being from Camden, how do you wrap up Camden? Because the brewery's right in the middle of it. How do you wrap up such a, a an area into a brand where it's you know people go, oh well, it's it's thunderbolts and lightning and you know it's goths and it's mods and it's everything in between but Camden is that I guess it's an area of and a brewing company that is open and accessible and, I, and it's got an energy I think that's what the wonderful thing about that we embrace at Camden the diversity of it you know you can be a, a lawyer a goth a barrister a surfer you know an 18 or 80 and be in Camden and listen to music and, and no one cares you know you don't have to be you don't have to stand for anything but everyone as long as you're having a good time you're welcome in Camden I think that's what our brands always stood for that it's accessible was it pure chance that you ended up in Camden pure absolutely yeah like I you know I landed in Camden with Lila we had a flat on Camden Square and you know that's the the, the where the name came from I was, like I said it was going to be called Max and I was you know, I was searching www.camdentownbrewery.com. Do you want to register the main for pound fifty? And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds like a great name for a brewery because we're right here. It's going to be in Camden. So, yeah, it makes sense. 2010, OK, mm. business flourishing. Sales were grown by 70% a year. Um, and you moved to the Arches, didn't you, under Kentish Town West Station. How did you handle this astonishing pace of growth? And when you reflect on it, it just was just normality, right? We were growing. You know, when we built the brewing company and we were, we were doing a you know one year and three year plan, we're like, well, if we can be in a hundred venues and we can do be in one keg a week and a hundred venues, success is ours. How fantastic! And within three months, we we're in two hundred venues doing five kegs a week. And like, what are we going to do? And I think yeah, that was a very you know timing was wonderful. The people I had around me were wonderful, but most importantly, what we were making was fantastic. Now, as you know, this series of podcasts is all about growing businesses, developing brands. And the way Piper sees it is that there are a series of step changes, which they call 71770. They're sort of inflection points, if you like, in the growth of a business, be it in turnover, number of employees, or perhaps number of sites. So would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess you could look at them from a, a people and or, or a revenue perspective for us and so the people is probably the easiest thing because you can I could see them we were seven people when we started yeah those days were were fun and free I guess at the beginning you know but we did everything together so a brewer would be a driver or a person in the office could be a brewer you know we were all multi-talented and multi-rolled and some of those people are still in the brewery today so and then I guess and then 17 people definitely you know that's a you know it's a fair size size business for a small business you know there's more people to talk to who are working at different times of the day you know I think when we went to you know that sort of stage we would have been we would have been brewing through the evenings so the brewery needed to work later so it wasn't as everything a reason I started Camden was to be everyone under one roof and I guess now it started having people working at different times of the day when I wasn't there so how do you make sure you start communicating with those people so you start doing different things you know having weekly get-togethers to make sure that everyone's on the same page mm. and then ultimately then you move on to the next you know when it's bigger 70 yeah. was probably the chapter before we started joining AB it was probably a huge change in us because we had a new facility, new people, and that's probably when we put an HR department in because, you know, making sure that even though we thought we were doing a great job without, you know, the team, we probably, we may may not have been. Communication would probably be the big thing across all those stages because the message, how do you make sure that the message of why you started, you know, to be the greatest lager brewery in the world is ringing true to the new driver who you're not seeing because he's working at the night time, who's just as important as the managing director. You know, so messaging across the business was definitely the challenges as we got bigger. But I think, uh, yeah, as better people joined us, they helped me to define how we should make that happen. 
You're listening to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand, with Jasper Cuppage, founder of Camden Town Brewery. Now, in 2015, you took the decision, didn't you, to, to seek investment from crowdfunding mm. to help you build a new brewery. It's become now a quite a popular route, of course, but it's not without its, its challenges or, or indeed its controversies, is it? How did you find the process? I, did, I mean, I didn't enjoy it because I didn't really understand funding and financing. That wasn't my, you know, that wasn't my side of the business. I wasn't, you know, I, I'm a very customer-driven person rather than a financial-driven person. And I think when we launched on Crowdcube back in the day, we, I think we've still got the most questioned valuation to date. You know, it was thousands of people like saying, how are you worth this? What are you doing? And so it was almost like inviting everyone in who I didn't know, people just questioning our beliefs. And so it was, yeah, it was a real opening up of you know of who I was as a person to the world on a social media platform, which is pretty, yeah, pretty you know I guess exposing, pretty, exp- isn't it? Yeah, it was, and so I enjoyed the, the the raise of it, I enjoyed the excitement of it. But then once it was you know it was all done, we ended up raising the most amount of money you could over the, you know that you're allowed to do, and then had to you know to shut it. Um, and then just was like, well, hold on a minute, I've got three and a half or two and a half thousand investors who now want to, who've got access to talk to me. And so the, and I'm dyslexic, so I used to just get hundreds of emails and I'm like, oh my God, I can't write. What am I going to do? So it was, yeah, it was, so it was, uh, yeah, it was not understanding, I guess, being a bit, you know, uh, I guess a bit naive, I guess, yeah. is probably when I reflect back on it. The target was one and a half million. Mm. You exceeded it by 183%. So you raised 2.75 million with 3,000 investors. You paid them back. I mean, they really made a great call, didn't they, with their crowdfunding? It was a great investment. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And they, you know, I've had lots of wonderful emails from people saying that I've started businesses off the back of this. You know, I used the money that I invested and we believed in you and thank you. I mean, obviously, we've had some derogatory pieces, but we've had a lot more people coming up and saying thank you for what we've done. You know, so, yeah, no, we did. I guess ultimately you invest in people to make a return and that's, you know, that's what we did. We safeguarded their money and, and then gave them a handsome return quite quickly. So, yeah. You sure did because yeah. in December... December 2015, you sold the business, didn't you, to AB InBev, the world's biggest brewer. That's right. But that was not without controversy in itself, was it? So so tell me about it. How did you decide to go and do that? I felt the only way to grow our brand was to partner with someone, you know, from a brand perspective. But I always thought it would be a brewing company because they'd understand the ups and downs of the industry. And so I always thought, well, I want to partner with an expert. We weren't looking to do it. We funded. We'd set the lease up for, for Enfield. We'd, we'd put the deposit down on the Cronin's. Enfield being your we'd, brewery. Then the second site that we have yeah. now out in Enfield. And we'd, so we'd got the lease. We'd put a deposit down the new equipment from Cronin's in Germany. And we were full steam ahead. And then they said, would you like to partner with us? And I didn't really, I mean, again, being naive, I thought they were coming to me to talk about a distribution deal. And I was like, well, it'd be wonderful to meet you. Let's, let's, why don't we talk? And so then they came to us and they talked about working together and how they'd like to do it and how we'd like to do it. And the relationship started then. But you didn't even know what M&A was at that point, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I had to find it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of acronyms now. Acronyms, I didn't know what was either. There's a lot of acronyms within AB. So I, and that was one of the things when we, when we started working with them, I said, look, guys, it's, when, we get, when we get through this deal, we've all got to be friends. So let's, let's make this you know, let's make this as interesting as professional as we possibly can. But also the acronyms have to stop. Listen, I've got an eye for detail. So all the you things that stop, I yeah. run and own, like, so I, you know, I understand a PL, I understand a, five, a three and single year plan for our business. I understand, but things that I don't have an interest in, like an M&A, I had no understanding of because I wasn't looking to do it. I'm well aware of what an M&A is now because <laughs> I've done one. And I've, you know, I've, I've definitely, uh, which was a really interesting experience. Was it? Yeah, it was. It was. I met some wonderful people and some of the people from the, the AB side have become really great friends of mine. And then mm. also some of the professionals, you know, Dalgit and Rob, you know, from or Rob from 
from RSM had become a great friend of mine because he said it was one of the funniest, uh, one of the funniest M and A's ever done. So probably from being so naive, right? So, but yeah, no, it was a really, really good experience. But off the back of that, I created some really strong partnerships within ABI, which is what I was trying to do because ultimately. I really believed in the brand that we were creating, and I still do today. I think there's a huge amount of white space for it, and the reason I took it to ABI and joined them was so that we could grow it to the level I really believed it could get to. There's quite a lot of criticism out there, wasn't there? Because you had created this brand which was kind of, you know, gifted amateur almost Mm. and enthusiast and a family Mm. and a little bit idiosyncratic Mm. and, you know, not playing by the rules, and then Mm. you went big. Mm. I mean, it was rightly so. I think the, the, the questions that really rang true were, you know, was I going to disappear? Are the beers going to be changed? And they were the ones that I was, you know, really considerate about, and they're the ones I really answered. All the, the you know, the nonsensical abuse that was, you know, not very well thought out. I wasn't that bothered with. Um, the social media piece didn't worry me that much. It was the team that I was really concerned about. You know, by that stage we were a hundred in the company, and I had to announce it to them. You know, and there were tears, and there were, you know, people resigning, and you know, that was probably the hardest piece. Really, of yes, people it was. resigned. Yeah, well, because think, they feared what it would do to. Yeah, they thought that we, well, we weren't a, you know, the brewery that we were. Before before, right? And so, yeah, we did lose a few, quite a few people at the beginning, you know, but a lot of people stayed, you know, and they've, you know, seen an even better Camden, you know, I think, you know, our beers have won more awards since we joined AB and not because of our relationship with AB, it's because we've got better and been allowed to get better. You know, we've got a better people policy. We hire, we train, you know, people, I remember doing a thing with Claire, who's the head of people, and she put her hand up and said, who has had any training at Camden since we've been here? And not one person put their hand up. <laughs> if you did that today, probably 80% of the people, everyone at Camden's had some form of, you know, beer school training, management training. So there's been, yeah, lots of improvements in the last four or five years. But you did, um, even some of your peers in the business, I'm thinking BrewDog, though they, you know, the implication was you've sold out and they weren't going to sell your beers anymore. Yeah, no, I, yeah, James did, did, you know, obviously that was a, a, a message that James sent to us and ended up tr- trending for days and days and days. And, I mean, uh, you know, James is very, very good at, at marketing and PR. And, you know, and, was it all spin then? Yeah. It was a good line. Uh, yeah, it was. But it, it didn't make us any, it didn't worry me or concern us as a business because I knew we'd chosen the right and made the right decision, you know, to continue the growth of what Camden stood for in the first place and those changes and those that decision hasn't changed today you know we're still doing exactly what we did four years ago but we're doing it even better but those comments are good they keep you on your toes and you know it was a bit of a a storm in a teacup and we've moved on and now we've got more and more fans on social media than we've ever had before and more and more people drinking Camden than ever before and winning more awards than we've ever won before so we must be doing something right and you and your friends your partners owned 95% of the business so you did okay as well right yeah yeah well they're lucky they are my best friends and I, I'm, I'm, they are now they certainly are now <laughs> you know, so no you know everyone but they you know listen we you're growing a, a capital intensive business is a risk but, you know, I risked everything to build something right. And I think, you know, a lot of people come into brewing who open a brewery and you can do it for, you know, 200, 100,000 pounds. Well, we spent two and a half million pounds building Camden down in Camden, you know, because we needed to incredible equipment to make the beer that we needed to make. And so, yeah, if it went wrong, it went wrong. And so they and they entrusted in me and backed me every single day of the week until we went, exited. So, yeah, they are very happy and we're still very good friends. How are you with risk? You don't strike me as a sleepless nights kind of guy. No, I'm not a not a gambler. No, but I'm I'm committed to. But do you to worry? Do you worry? Do you get scared? Did you become anxious? Yes, 
not about growth. I get anxious about things within the business. You know, how are the people? How is it working? How are our customers? They're the things that worry me. How's the service in the horseshoe? You know, what's the food like on a Sunday? They're the things that get me worried. I don't get worried about business because I wouldn't grow it if I didn't think it could be grown. So the opportunity doesn't make me anxious, but situations and problems make me anxious. How can I improve them? And I think that's the... You know, because I want to make it great, you know, and I'm on everything. You know, how our trucks look it upsets me if I see them. How can we make them look better? How the uniform's not right? They're the things that get me anxious. And now when you get a bigger and bigger team, how do you make sure that that still translates across? So I worry about things, but it doesn't keep me up at night. Mm-hmm. But I worry about how do I make it better as we grow and continually improve it. And where are you now? How many people do you employ? What's the turnover? So we're about 200, just short of 200 people now um, in the brewing company. Um, Revenue-wise, we're you know between sixty and seventy million pounds a year. Um, so yeah, so considerable. You know, from where we started in the brewing arches, you know, sort of seven or eight years ago. So yeah, and those, you know, and those you can almost rate people. You know, people and turnover are kind of the similar thing, and we've been growing at the same sort of percentages ever since we started. How do you find though the change in role now? You're a small cog, I mm. guess, in an enormous wheel. Mm. You're no longer founder. Well, you are still the founder, but you become the CEO now. Mm. What about the change in role? You go through chapters within any career, I think, and I'm turning a new chapter at the moment. I think, you know, AB, they've got a way of working which is different, you know, to us. You know, our reporting is definitely different to what it used to be. You know, we do a lot more of it. But, you know, that's a bit like the 80-20 piece, you know, but for that 20 more that we do, we've got more in the 80 as well. So, yeah, my role now is more and more keeping the business honest and mentoring the people who are running it, the leaders who started behind me as managers who are now MD or now directors. Yeah, my role now is to challenge and to make sure we continue to grow and challenge the rights and the wrongs of the business to the guys who are leading. Because every time I've, you know, I've interviewed probably, I mean, we're nearly 200 people. I must have interviewed maybe 80% of the people who are in there, maybe even 90% of the people who have come through the business. And you know, I've always said to them, you know, if you're coming into this and you want a career, you know, you, you should be going after my job, you know, ultimately. And if I find that person who wants it, then I'll step down as soon as I can, you know, because, you know, that means there's someone in there who's after it. And, yeah, I'm enjoying it because mm. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing as, you know, not doing as much in a sense. I'm there the same amount of hours, but I'm not doing as much of the mental arithmetic in my mind of how we're going to grow this thing on my own anymore. Now I'm sharing that with a lot of other people. Even though we've got two facilities I can walk both facilities from end to end, be that from the finance team to the brewing team and talk to them. So I spend a lot of time in the industry, in our industry, as in my business, and also out in the industry, sort of mm-hmm. listening to what people are doing, meeting people who are, you know, the, the next Camdens or the next restaurant groups of the country. You no longer have a stake in the business, I think. Is that no, right? no, no stake. Is it, what does keep you there? Because you could walk away, you could start again. Yeah, I could. I've got something that's successful. I love Mm. being there and to stop and start again and get committed to that. You know, it's dedication. You know, it's 100% of mine thinking about, you know, what you're doing every single moment you're awake. And I've got other things that I want to think about these days, like a family and and the team that I've already got. So, yeah, no, I'm not driven to do another one. I love the one I've got and I love the family I've got. So I'm going to, you know, continually, hopefully be value to the business I've got. Maybe one day they'll change the locks and they won't want me to come in anymore. But at the moment, I still think I bring value and expertise to the business that I'm in. How difficult a call was it to, to sell? It was your baby. Was there ever any sort of emotional... No, 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 no not nothing. It... I think of the relationship that I built with the people we sold to was important, was so important. 
So if they'd been awful through the M&A, I probably would have regretted every minute of it. Mm. But it, actually, I felt like we'd found the place that we were meant to be in. If I'm, you know, like if you look at the beer industry, it's quite cliquey and, you know, we were making lager whereas everyone was making skulls and crossbones and IPAs and we were doing, you know, in essence, you know, trying to compete with the Peronis and the Stellas of the world. And, you know, so we were kind of setting our own kind of agenda. So actually there's 30-odd breweries like us within AB and it's a bit like being in a, you know, a small restaurant group. You know, there's events that we can get to, there's people who come to us, we host things. So, yeah, there's a lot going on that's not just about being acquired, it's actually joining something. It's a great success over a really quite short period of time. Mm. Were there ever dark moments? Was there ever a batch of beer that went horribly wrong and you had your head in your hands and you thought, I can't do this anymore? You know, it can't have all been oh, hundreds. fabulous. No, hundreds of moments where just like joining AB was, you know, it was, you know, I've, you know, I don't have any regrets. However, it was one of the worst days in my brewing career, you know, talking to people about it, you know, the social media insight, the team resigning, you know, I seem to have more leaving parties than welcoming parties, you know, for months. Um, plenty of dark days. We blew the brewery up, you know, it caught on fire. You know, there's been lots of moments where it's, you know, and just the challenges of, you know, in an industry that's so, you know, it's been around a long time, the beer industry in England, so pushing on doors to try and make it happen. So, and why do it? You know, I remember when we first started, you know, I was on holidays after about 18 months of being, you know, from the brewery opening, first batches, I took off my first holiday and I, and, and I went away and the brewmaster rang me, said, do you want to know the good news or the bad news? And the bad news is every single tank in the brewery is infected. And I was like, great. And the, the good news is, well, we've dumped everything and we're going to start again. And I was like, and we found the problem, you know, I think. So, you know, we've had definitely, you know, when we're, a, you know, we're an unpasteurized brewing company, probably the largest unpasteurized lager brewery company in the world. And that takes a lot of hard work and dedication. You know, it's a lot easier to pasteurize a beer to, you know, to put it to market. And we don't because we want to make sure that we get the freshest, most intense flavor, a natural flavor of our beer. But, and that's a, a way that we work and that takes huge amounts of work so yeah holding you know what you know having orders going to supermarkets and and you're delayed because something hasn't come through a result that you're waiting on because you won't release a beer until that's done so it ticks off a box so yeah there's moments in time where there's not enough hours in the day to, to work it so yeah it's even though there's from an outside there's a beautiful part of Camden and, and don't get me wrong it is there's 80 20 but there's definitely 20 percent of pain which it makes the business the bet you know the what what it is today the challenges of growth which I enjoy you know I think if we were in a always say when we're you know if we're not growing we're dying you know and it's in, but they come with huge challenges and sleepless nights and and moments of you know of concern but yeah no, I've they've definitely had plenty of them what about your advertising and marketing? I mean, you had the expert, obviously, in, in your father-in-law. But what mm. was, what's, have you done a piece of that that you're particularly proud of? We've done lots of really interesting work. You know, I thought, you know, obviously we did Hell's Razor for the Crowd Key, which worked really, really well. From a brand perspective, we've done wonderful work graphically. You know, I think we're really strong. You know, I think we've been really disciplined. You know, we've got a very good tone of voice. You know, every, we're, I, I work with a really, really great group of people. And there's a wonderful girl called Zoe who's been with us, who i met at St Martin's she was 25 and she's been with us ever since and she's done our brand and she's been given articulate license to just do it you know I challenge her all the time we work very close together but she's done an incredible job and she said to me though that you know every single part of this brand be it a blog a tweet message on social media anything has been written by a woman and that's her and her team you don't really realize how great it is until you kind of walk away from it and look and I think so from a brand perspective We've done some wonderful things. From marketing, I think we've got a long way to go. I think we haven't, we've got, you know, and that's the, that's the next stage of our business. How do we actually start talking about ourselves in a better way? And you're 
your plan is to be the best brewery in the world. Yeah, best lager brewery in the world. Best lager yeah. brewery and I think in the world. never the biggest, you know, I don't want to be the biggest brewery in the world, but if we could be like the most loved, the best lager brewery in the world, because lagers had this, you know, everyone, even though it's the nationals, the world favorite beer, right? 75% of the world drinks, if they drink beer, they drink a lager, but everyone doesn't like a lager. You know, it's like, oh, I don't drink lager, lager swagger. But actually it's a wonderful style of beer. So we want to try and become most favorite, the best lager brewery. I guess it's favorite brewery, lager brewery in the world. And what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> it's all going to be okay in the end. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's all going to work itself out. <laughs> Jasper Cuppage, lovely talking to you. Thank you. Been a pleasure.